Our reading today is Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 5 to 15. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is God's word. As you've noticed, uh, we are taking a little break from our series in Hebrews. Uh, We're spending three weeks in the Lord's Prayer before we come back to the book of Hebrews. For some, I guess the Lord's Prayer will be very, very familiar words. Uh, I went to a primary school where we said the Lord's Prayer together. Uh, a lot of days of the week. And so it was a, a very regular part of thing. Out of interest, who else here had that sort of experience at school of praying the Lord's Prayer? So some did. Quite a lot did. And many didn't. Um, so these verses were burned into my memory from an early age. Also at church, we would say that very regularly. Who's, just like the same question, who's had that at church quite regularly? Not quite sure if that's fewer people than had it at school. That's interesting. Very interesting. Um, here at CCM for reasons that I don't know. Uh, we tend to pray it together each week in the morning service, but less often in the evening. Uh, so that's something we, we could think about. And uh, there'll be some here tonight for whom this prayer is completely unknown. So uh, varied exposure to it uh, this evening. There's a lot of prayers recorded in the Bible. So you might wonder, why is this particular one so important? Why has it been picked up throughout history and prayed so regularly and prominently by Christians? We know that Jesus himself taught this prayer, probably on lots of occasions, but uh, at least twice in Matthew 6, where we just had it read, uh, part of Jesus' teachings on the uh, Sermon on the Mount, and there's a a slightly shorter version in Luke 11 with a different context. Uh, But here's the really significant thing. In Matthew 6, verse 9, Jesus says, this then is how you should pray. And in Luke 11, the disciples ask Jesus, Lord, Teach us to pray. I don't know what you expect Jesus to say at that point uh, when they say, teach us to pray. Do you expect him to say, well, you need to, to, to stand like this or, or sit or uh, kneel like this and you need to close your eyes and if you're under the age of 10, you need to put your hands together like this to stop you <laughs> fidgeting so you can concentrate. Uh, and then you need to, to quiet your, uh, your mind and focus on God and then you need to speak in this particular tone of voice. Th- there's none of that... <laughs> There's none of that at all. Lord, teach us to pray. And then Jesus gives them this prayer. 
In other words, this is a, a prayer that teaches us to pray. So before we begin, I want to do exactly that and ask God, ask the Lord Jesus to teach us to pray. Some of you were thinking I'd forgotten to pray, weren't you? That would be ironic, uh, but I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, please teach us to pray. Teach us. Many of us struggle to pray. Many of us struggle to set aside the time to pray. We, we struggle to feel like praying. We struggle to be sure that praying has any effect. We struggle to find words to say. We're not sure how to express ourselves to you. We're often nervous of making mistakes in front of you or looking naive in front of other people. And sometimes our hearts are just so rebellious. Sometimes we're so distracted. Sometimes we're depressed. And all of these things keep us from praying. And so, Lord, as we look at this wonderful prayer over these next three weeks, please, would you teach us to pray to our Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, amen. You've got a handout, uh, a very snazzy one. Thank you very much to those who took it on themselves to, pr- to produce that for these three weeks. I believe there's enough for one of each week, so the, the deal is come back next week and the week after, and you'll have three of these to keep <laughs> to remind you of the Lord's Prayer. The, uh, the headings are on the back there. Uh, you can see on the handout, we're, we're basically not going any further than the first line of the Lord's Prayer today. Our Father in heaven. And let me start with a a big statement that I've put at the top of your, your handout. What we believe about God will determine how we pray. What we believe about God will determine how we pray. Think about that for for a moment. If you think of God inside your own head as uh, being a sort of impersonal force, something like gravity or electricity, but, but a bit bigger. Uh, overseeing those other things. Uh, how would you pray to a God like that? You probably wouldn't pray at all. Or you'd feel a bit idiotic if you did, uh, on the level of standing and talking to your electric power socket and expecting something to happen. Or imagine that you, you see that God is um, an all-powerful ruler and a mighty judge and a, a king, but in your mind he's not very concerned about ordinary people like you and me. How would you pray? Imagine that you see God as like some sort of flamboyant artist who's brilliant and put the, the universe together, an absolute genius, but rather sort of self-obsessed and wrapped up in his art. How would you pray to that kind of God? No offense, you know. We <laughs> or if you think of God as a, a sort of weepy, sympathetic deity who feels sorry for you in your troubles but doesn't have the power to actually do anything about it, how would you pray? If you're not certain that God exists at all, you're very unlikely to pray. We can flip that idea on its head as well. How we pray says something about what we believe about God. So if you basically don't pray, what does that say? If you, st- if you, if you and I secretly think of praying as a bit dull, a bit of a waste of time, what does that say about what we believe about God. Imagine if I told you that I, I tend to try and avoid conversations with my wife, Tree, because when they happen, they're a little bit dull and nothing actually gets done. What would that say about our marriage? It's not like that, just to, just to be really clear. Perhaps in the other direction, but not like... Um, the same with prayer. What we believe about God will determine how we pray to him. 
And before Jesus teaches us the rest of the lines of the Lord's Prayer, he, he diagnoses a couple of ways in which people's prayers reveal their heart. I don't know if you uh, picked up on the introduction to the Lord's Prayer from verses 5 to 8. We see there a couple of groups singled out, the hypocrites and the pagans. And how they pray reveals their heart and reveals what they believe about God. The hypocrites, in verse 5, Jesus says, They love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. So what do these hypocrites think about God? Very little, it seems. When they pray, their attention isn't actually on God at all. It's on other people around. I say this slightly hesitantly, but if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've probably met one or two of these kinds of people. Uh, The person whose prayers are verbose and impressive and perhaps very animated and knowledgeable. And after a little while, you start thinking, who is this prayer actually for? It seems designed more to make the prayer look impressive and everyone else to feel inadequate than to actually communicate with God. Have you noticed that in a group setting, when somebody prays, a, prays a, an intimidating prayer like that, often there's a long silence afterwards because no one else feels able to chip in the next one. Don't do that, says Jesus. You might impress people, but you won't impress God. Just think for a moment, what does it do to uh, a friendship or a marriage if all of the communication in that friendship or marriage is for the benefit of other people who are listening in? That's an ugly thing. It's a surefire recipe for tragedy. If a husband or a wife only ever speaks kindly to his or her spouse for the benefit of the guests or the other people in the friendship circle. A few years ago, I was absolutely shocked when um, uh, a couple that I knew very well, friend, uh, parents of a friend of mine, suddenly split up. And the shock was that prior to that, they'd seemed so perfect. Visiting their house was always huge fun. They, they seemed to have such amazing rapport and play off each other so brilliantly. But talking to them and their children afterwards, uh, it was all for show. The guests were suitably impressed, but as I understand it now, when the guests went home, the communication stopped. So don't let that happen to your relationship with God. What happens, verse 6, when the guests have gone home and when you're alone in your room with the door closed? That is a far more significant mark of the health or otherwise of your relationship with God. So do you pray when no one is listening except for God? That's a good sign if you do that, that you're not one of these hypocrites that Jesus is speaking of, but be aware of that. So there's the hypocrites whose praying reveals that they think nothing of God. He doesn't really feature in their motives at all. But then verse 7, there's the pagans. Don't be like them, says Jesus, because, well, verse 7, they keep babbling, using many, many words, endlessly repeating the same things. What does that show that they think about God? That he isn't paying attention, that he isn't impressed, that he needs to be distracted from whatever more important business he's uh, paying attention to? Uh, that he needs to be bothered over and over and over again until he's cajoled into listening and doing something. These are the ultimate God-botherers. They, uh, they think God can't be bothered unless they bother him. And so they keep bothering him over and over and over again until he does something. Now, we've got to be careful with this. Um, 
It's easier to slip into this than, uh, than you might imagine. Remember my repetition of the Lord's Prayer again and again and again and again at primary school and at church. Uh, mostly I'm grateful for that because it's burnt those words into my head so I can remember them. But at times it can slip into a sort of lifeless repetition, going through the motions. However we use the Lord's Prayer, we need to be careful of that. I don't mishear me, repetition in prayer is not wrong in itself. In the Psalms, you see a lot of repetition of things for emphasis or emotional intensity, responding to God. Jesus himself prayed the same prayer three times in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, repetition's not wrong. We don't need to cancel all the repeated choruses that we sing here. That's, that's good news, I think. Um, although it is a mistake that we could slip into, thinking that the more we pray or the more we sing the same thing over and over and over again, the more God will listen to us and pay attention to us. I think some circles have slipped into that mindset. Let me suggest a way that you could perhaps test yourself to see if there's a hint of this pagan mindset in you. Do you think that if you prayed more regularly than you do, that uh, you'd feel better about your relationship with God? I guess so. You can nod at that one. Not a trick question. I think you would. But here's the key question. Why would you feel better about your relationship with God? Is it because you think that by praying more, you will have earned his approval, his pleasure, got his attention? Because if that's what you think, then that's pagan. It's so easy to feel that way. We, we easily think that after days or weeks or even years of disappointing God in our mind with our lackluster prayer life, that we've got to sort of gradually undo all that, sort of backtrack just as far as we've gone with the disappointing prayer life and impress God for long enough so that we can get our our relationship back on track with him. And Jesus says that is rubbish. That is pagan. That is not Christian. God, in verse 8, knows what you need before you ask him. You have his full attention. You don't need to get his attention by doing something. He just wants you to talk to him. Why? Why does God want us to talk to him? Well, because as verse 6 and verse 8 and verse 9 and verse 14 and verse 15 say, he's our father. That is the glorious truth that we're going to be exploring this evening. Jesus wants us to address God in verse 9 as our Father in heaven. Because that, if we believe that, that is what will get our prayer life on track as Jesus wants it to be. That is how we learn to truly pray. So that's the rest of the sermon. Quite simply, these two things. He's our Father and he's in heaven. Getting our heads around those two incredible things and the difference believing those two things will make to our prayers. So first, he's our Father. He's our father. Now, as soon as I say that, I want to recognize that some people in this room will have an unpleasant reaction to the idea of God as as our father. For two reasons. Uh, Some will have painful memories of the way human fathers have treated us. Um, And others might detect a a whiff of sexism there. Why father and not mother? So let me spend spend a moment just uh, on, on each of those. What about bad human fatherhood? It is sadly true that that some here will um, associate the word father with rejection and lies and anger and violence and rage. Maybe you felt no love from an earthly father. Maybe you felt loved only when you were successful or beautiful or uh, conforming to his expectations. 
perhaps for you, uh, an earthly father, maybe your own father, has poisoned this idea of God as father. If you recoil whenever you say or hear the name father, you might instinctively want to avoid using that word for God to save putting yourself through that sort of torture. Please don't do that. Don't close yourself off from one of the most wonderful truths of the Bible. Don't allow anyone, no matter how influential over your life, to infect the way you think about God like that, to poison something so incredibly good. The reality is, even those of us with absolutely wonderful human fathers, and I I count myself uh, as blessed to, to have a wonderful human father, even we don't have perfect fathers, It's always a somewhat mixed experience, having a a human, earthly father. It's hard to avoid transferring that mix uh, of experience onto God when we call him father. Well, maybe this will help. Imagine that you could somehow, I don't know how, imagine you could somehow trawl through all of human history and all of the globe and extract every good fatherly act from every bit of history from every bit of the globe, every loving conversation, every wise bit of guidance, every hug, every perfectly caring bit of discipline or encouragement, the whole lot, every good fatherly deed, and somehow just extract them and compress them into some container, and imagine that you could make sure that everything wrong is filtered out, so that you can remove everything that is selfish or overbearing or weak or cruel, every bit of abuse or neglect. And what is left? The really, really good stuff untarnished and pure. Well, God's fatherhood is a bit like that, but better. (laughs) Um, So, of course, he's never absent. He's never busy or aloof or distracted or disinterested. He's never abusive or overbearing or drunk or creepy or unloving. He never loses his temper. He never has anything to prove. He never deals selfishly or unwisely or harshly or incompetently or insecurely. He is uniquely the perfect father. In fact, we don't really call him father because he reminds us of human fathers. It's the other way round. He's the true father. And earthly parents are only good parents insofar as they are like him. So if you're a parent, like me, you'll know what a scary responsibility that is, that we are supposed to be like God in our parenting. But whatever your experience of fatherhood, you can identify with David who wrote Psalm 27 and he said, even if my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. What about the second issue? Why is God father and not mother in these verses? Let me say a couple of things about that. First, there's no sexism implied here. Uh, God is not saying that he's in some way intrinsically male rather than female. Uh, Remember, right at the beginning of the Bible, um, Uh, We're told that both men and women, both male and female, are made in the image of God. Both male and female are the image of God. Uh, So he's not saying that he is one particular gender. He's the origin and uh, where the image of both come from. And in various places in Scripture, God uses the picture of motherhood to describe his relationship with his people. Isaiah 49 speaks of him having compassion on his people like a mother nursing a baby. In Isaiah 66, he comforts his children like a mother bouncing her child on on, on her knee. God's not a sexist. He's not afraid of motherly imagery like that. But secondly, we do need to be very careful about tampering with God's revelation in any way. 
Because if we do, we'll, we'll lose something. If God chooses to identify himself as a father in so many verses, which he does over and over and over and over again, we do need to take that seriously. And we need to sometimes be a little bit suspicious of ourselves and our culture. Uh, the desire to, to change or amend these things sometimes comes from a rather obsessive preoccupation with uh, sexism issues and uh, that sees threats everywhere to those kinds of things. The purpose of calling God our Father is not about making some point about gender, but about the extraordinary privilege and joy of being able to call our Creator, our Parent, our Father. Okay. So as we pray to God our Father, let's dwell on that for a moment. We pray to God our Father. Think of all the other possibilities that Jesus could have chosen in terms of how we address God at the beginning of this prayer. There are many, many possibilities. Majestic Lord, King, Protector, Shepherd, Mighty God, Righteous Judge, our Rock, our Redeemer. All of these things are true and wonderful and are often used in prayers in the Bible and are very good things for us to pray to God and titles for us to address him with. But with all of those still true, Jesus opens this incredible door for us and says, that same God who is all of those things, call him Father. You can call him Father. More than that, it's normal to call him Father. This prayer that teaches us how to pray begins, Father, our Father. In the new British royal household, as little Prince George grows up, uh, I guess he'll see most people addressing his father as your majesty or your highness or other suitably uh, highfalutin titles. But little George will grow up at the moment uniquely with the privilege of calling Prince William daddy, I guess. Only he's allowed to do that. What a privilege. What, a, what an amazing position to be in. And that's just a tiny picture of the privilege of calling God our Father. He's revealed to us in Scripture with these countless titles, all of which we could continue to use because they teach us truth about him. But in the Old Testament, there's not much about God as Father. It's not absent. There are hints of it uh, in various places. Psalm 68 calls God the Father of the fatherless. A very tender picture of God's care for his people. A couple of places, the prophets even dare to address God personally as Father, but it's only a couple of places. It's rare, it's unusual. And then in the New Testament, uh, the fatherhood of God just gushes out from the pages, from the lips of Jesus and then from the lips of his followers. And it is such fantastic news. There's one really important question that we need to address, though. Who are God's children? In other words, who has the right to pray this prayer, to take the name Father on our lips as we address God? And let me just say three quick things about that. Number one, we're not automatically God's children. Number two, Jesus is God's only son. And number three, we can be adopted as God's children. So number one, we're not automatically God's children. Although the Bible occasionally speaks of God sort of metaphorically as father to everyone because he made us all and he gives life and breath to everybody, there are a few verses in the Bible that speak of that kind of fatherhood. But other verses make it clear that we don't have the right to approach him as our father. Other verses speak of how we're by nature cut off from God, excluded from his household. 
in John's Gospel, the opening chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 12, describes people as needing to be given the right to become children of God. We're not automatically children of God. We have to be given the right to become children of God. We're estranged from him, alienated from him by the way that we've treated him. We're not his children automatically. You soon get in trouble if you try to attach yourself to somebody else's family. Um, I imagine that uh, when uh, I uh, pick up Joel from nursery school, as I sometimes do at 3.20 on on an afternoon, um, if some other child decided that he suddenly wanted to attach himself to our family and come home and have dinner and all that sort of thing, I'd have to be quite careful. And No, no, that, that doesn't work. You can't just invite yourself into a family and attach yourself. If you're not in a family... If we're not in God's family by um, nature, none of us are initially, then we can't just show up and attach ourselves. It doesn't work like that. We have to be invited and come on his terms. So we're not automatically his children, but Jesus is God's only son. In the Gospels, more than uh, apparently 150 times, Jesus addresses God personally as his father. And that is absolutely unprecedented, Uh, not just in the Bible, but anywhere. Jesus enjoys that family relationship of being God's child that we are all naturally excluded from. He has it because he is perfect and never sinned. And he has it because he's more than human. He's divine in nature. And from all eternity, he has been the Father's Son, the divine Son of God. If that's a mind-bender, ask someone afterwards to explain that to you. Uh, But it means Jesus has the right, the privilege, and always has done, to call God his father. But he's the only one by nature. But then thirdly, we can be adopted as God's children. Ephesians uh, chapter 1 verse 5 speaks of us being adopted as God's children through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. How is that accomplished? Uh, Ephesians 1 goes on to speak of the blood of Jesus. Jesus shed his blood so that our blood doesn't have to be shed so that we might be justified. In other words, declared righteous even though we sinned. Righteous in God's sight and then adopted into his family. And one of the books that I read about the Lord's Prayer asks this question. Which do you find most exhilarating and wonderful? Is it justification or adoption? It's a sort of impossible question because they're both fabulous. Um, But justification is what I desperately need as a sinner to be cleansed of my sin, to be declared righteous. But that justification makes adoption possible. God can then take me into his family to be his child forever and ever. I wouldn't suggest you pit justification off adoption, but adoption is absolutely fabulous. Do you know God as your father? If you don't, then the cross of Jesus Christ is what you need more than anything else. I'll talk to someone about that afterwards. If you do know God as Father, then let's take a moment to look at the second half of the phrase, he's our Father in heaven, and then we'll come back to what this all means for our, our praying. It's a significant title, our Father in heaven. It's used 14 times in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, but what does it mean for God to be in heaven? Uh, it's important our answers come from the Bible. Let me uh, just mention three. There's lots of things that biblically we could say it means for God to be in heaven. Um, but three significant ones I want to just mention. First, he's divine. He's God. <laughs> Although God is in one sense present and active everywhere, 
the Bible pictures heaven as a, a sort of special dwelling place of God, where he's enthroned, where he's served day and night by angels, the place where he's perfectly seen and perfectly acknowledged. Uh, don't limit him to that place. 1 Kings 8.27 says, The highest heaven cannot contain him. But God our Father is the sovereign of the universe, the divine Lord and ruler of everything that is. That should make a difference to how we pray. He's divine. He's invisible. He lives beyond time and space. Uh, We normally think of material and physical things as necessary for existence, but they're not. God exists beyond the time and space of our universe. The Father in heaven is independent of those things. He's not bound to time and space. He is, as John 4.24 says, he's spirit. Jesus became perfectly uh, human and perfectly reveals the Father to us. He even says that in, uh, in seeing him, in seeing Jesus, we can see the Father. So we're not prevented from knowing the Father. We can know him through Jesus. But the Father himself, physically speaking, is not visible. Uh, now, this is important, I think. You know that weird feeling of, of praying a prayer inside your head silently, and as far as you can tell, your thoughts just disappear off into the ether. And you wonder if God is really there and if he's able to, to hear your prayers. And it can feel quite odd. Uh, as a young Christian, you, you start doing that for the first time, and you close your eyes and you just think a prayer. And it feels odd, very weird. As a teenager, I was given some quite unhelpful advice. I was doubting whether God existed, and somebody said to me, well, just pray and ask God to show himself to you in some kind of experience as you pray. Well, I think God ultimately did answer that prayer because he showed me Jesus in the Bible. But if God is spirit in heaven, then when we pray, we can't expect to get a sort of iPhone-style message acknowledgement. It's not going to say delivered and then read under your prayer just to make sure you know that it's got to the right place. That is not how it works. You have to trust. If you know God the Father through Jesus, he does hear you. Prayers also never get stuck in the draft folder. That's the, the flip side. That's the good news. You, know, you never get that annoying thing where a message stays on your phone and was never sent and you didn't realize until you sought through it again. You'll never get through to a voicemail when you pray. Thank you for calling God. All our customer service <laughs> angels are, um, <laughs> see what I did there, are now busy. But rest assured, your prayer is important to us. It's not like that. God hears, but he is invisible. You have to trust him. He's divine, he's invisible, and he's perfect. In Matthew's Gospel, God as Heavenly Father is described in lots of ways as good, righteous, holy, just, merciful, loving, kind, forgiving, generous. Just back a page from our our passage in Matthew 5, 48. Jesus says, be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Yikes. That's not to give us despair or give us a, a sort of false hope that we could never live up to that, but to make us call on his mercy And long to be like him. And with Jesus' help, make progress in that direction. That is the father that we call on. Divine, invisible, perfect. Now put those two things together. Our father in heaven. I don't know about you. It's hard to hold those two things together in your head. 
It's hard to hold one of them in your head, but two is really difficult. He's our father, so he's personal and intimate and caring and loves us and listens to us. He's also in heaven, so he's all-powerful and divine and majestic. Both intimacy and majesty, both fatherly love and transcendent greatness in our one God. Now, you'll find churches and individual Christians uh, who lean one way or the other, either towards the Father or towards the, the, the in-heaven perfection. If you just lean one of those ways, it will kill your prayers. If you just think of God in heaven, then he'll seem remote and austere and forbidding and impersonal. And you won't want to pray to him. But if you just think of God as your father and not, not as God in heaven then you could just end up thinking of him as pally, matey, uh, intimate, caring, but just not all-powerful, not worthy of your worship. And praying to that God might seem comforting for a while, but you'll soon give up when you realize that he's powerless to do anything for you. For some impressive people, knowing them more personally makes you lose respect for them. Uh, At my primary school, seeing as we're talking about my primary school, we had a, a rather intimidating teacher called Mr. Grantham. And even the scary kids were scared of Mr. Grantham. Um, but then one day, word got out that Mr. Grantham's first name was Phil. Nothing wrong with that. So it's a great name. Um, but me and my mates at primary school found that utterly hilarious. I don't know why. Mr. Grantham, have you heard? Mr. Grantham's name is Phil. That's really funny. For some reason, it, it, it brought him off that pedestal. He was no longer scary Mr. Grantham. He was just some bloke called Phil. But with, with God, even as we come to know him intimately as our father, our respect for, for him can only grow. He doesn't cease to be all those wonderful, amazing things that he is as God in heaven. One writer uh, that I read about this suggests that to try and keep these two things in your head, our Father in heaven, that you should let your thoughts kind of swing like a pendulum, getting wider and wider and wider in each direction. He's my Father, and he's God in heaven. And he's my Father, and he's God in heaven. And just try to keep those two things together in your head until it sinks in more and more. Let's step back and ask the big question. If we believe those things, if we believe that he is our Father in heaven... How are we going to pray? Well, for a start, I think it means that we will pray if we believe those things. We'll love praying if we believe those things. If you and I truly believe that God is our Father in heaven, then not speaking to him is unthinkable. He's drawn you and me into his family. He loves you and and me intensely. He's eager to hear your every word. He has the power to grant any request. He has the wisdom to know what to grant and what to refuse. How could we not love spending time speaking to our Father in heaven? And so if we get this, if we believe this, then we'll pray both alone and together. Jesus commended going and praying alone, but this prayer is also designed to be prayed together to our Father in heaven. In a sense, as we gather in church and pray together, we're we're sort of behind closed doors. We're not praying as a church to impress the world. We're just a family of brothers and sisters talking to our Father. That's what we're doing. Let's love doing that. Second, it means uh, we're going to want to learn to pray in the way that God intends. That's why this Lord's Prayer is so great. It outlines the Father's agenda for prayer that he wants us to have, things that he wants us to speak to him about. It's a, it's a pattern 
for prayer. You can pray it just how it stands, word for word, and that's great. You can also expand on it in a million different ways and fill out each line with things that uh, are particular to our own lives but uh, are part of the categories that each phrase gives us. In a sense, all of the prayers of the Bible and all of the, the godly prayers that we could ever pray come under some of these headings within the Lord's Prayer. So let this great prayer teach you to pray. And lastly, it'll mean that we trust our Father in heaven for the answers to our prayers. We'll be his trusting children. A chapter later in in Matthew's Gospel, in uh, chapter 7, Jesus teaches that God is a Father who delights to give gifts, good gifts, to his children. Like an earthly father who gives fish and bread to his children rather than snakes and stones. Um, That's the image. God is wise about what he gives to us and when he gives it to us and how he gives it to us. As a dad, I love giving things to my son, to Joel. Uh, But if I gave him everything he asked for, let me assure you, it would be a complete disaster. Um, He'd be dead. We'd be bankrupt. Um, (laughs) Several major international incidents would have taken place. Uh, in London, uh, you probably would have been impacted somehow. Be, be thankful for my, uh, my wise generosity to my son. My, <laughs> my wife's parents uh, have kindly given us a, a bit of money to put aside for Joel's education, but I'm not going to give it to him now, even if he wants it. For many years to come, I'm not going to give it to him, even if uh, he asked, even though I could give it to him if I wanted to. And it might look good for him whenever he's 14, 15 and discovers there's some money for his education, and he wants it. I'm not going to give it to him. And I hope that's because it's a wise fatherly decision. Joel needs to trust me on that, as hard as it might be. Same with God. Trust him to say yes or no or wait or maybe or yes but in a different way to how you imagined or I have something much better in mind. He's capable of all those answers and more and he'll choose the right one because he's our perfect father. Be his trusting children. So that's the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. Looking forward to the rest. Um, Let's pray to our Father in heaven. I'm going to give you a minute just to speak to your Father yourself before I pray. Speak to him. Whatever is on your mind, whatever hasn't been said between you and him, talk to your Father in heaven just for a moment. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. 
forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.